Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name's Sally James. I'm a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Centre for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here today. Uh, I'm also the author of uh, this new study, A Service to the Economy, Removing Barriers to Invisible Trade, that I trust most of you have a copy of this paper. I'm really glad you could join us today to talk about this important issue. Uh, trade and services tends to fly beneath the radar of many trade analysts and commentators. I think that's partly because the barriers uh, to, to increase trade in services are, are more abstract than the sort of tariffs and subsidies that, of goods negotiations, and they're the sorts of barriers that uh, trade negotiators are used to dealing with, like spreadsheets and numbers of goods and applying formula, uh, whereas barriers to trade in services tend to reach into domestic regulatory issues uh, that trade negotiators are, are not quite as used to dealing with. But that's not to, uh, to say that, uh, or make, make no mistake, that uh, services trade is very important. The benefits from liberalising uh, services and from giving consumers and firms access to providers from around the world uh, would, according to many studies, uh, vastly eclipse the gains from liberalising trade in goods. Uh, the gains are estimated to be twice as large as the gains from freeing trade in manufacturers and more than 30 times greater than freeing trade in that very contentious and high-profile issue of agriculture. Because services are an input to so many other goods and services, the positive effects of efficient markets are especially pervasive in this, in this case. For those of you with a mercantilist obsession with exports, many US com companies would stand to do very well from further global trade liberalisation. Uh, my paper also comments, uh, or kind of emphasises that American consumers would benefit from more unilateral liberalisation at home as well. I'm delighted today that our three distinguished speakers could, could join us to talk about these important issues when I was thinking about my ideal lineup to speak on services trade. These people were my first choices, so I would like to thank them once again for coming out. I'm really glad to have the A-team here. No pressure, folks. Our first uh, speaker this morning is, is uniquely qualified to talk about where negotiated services trade liberalisation stands currently and how uh, the administration, uh, such as it currently knows, uh, plans to approach future negotiations. Christine Bliss is Assistant United States Trade Representative for Services and Investment. She's responsible for overseeing all multilateral and bilateral services negotiations and policy issues. She's the lead US negotiator in the WTO services negotiations and has negotiated the services and financial services chapters in several of the United States uh, preferential trade agreements. Ms. Bliss also served as chief counsel and acting assistant United States trade representative for monitoring enforcement responsible for managing US litigation in the WTO, NAFTA and other multilateral and bilateral trade agreements. Uh, before joining the Office of the United States Trade Representative in 2000, Ms Bliss was counsel to uh, an association re representing US Fortune 500 firms on international trade, investment and tax issues. She also has extensive uh, experience in private practice um, and was a uh, partner in the firm of Mudrose, Guthrie and Ferdin, and on Capitol Hill as well as a legislative assistant. Ms Bliss is a member of the DC and California bars. She received her JD degree from the University of California at Davis and her LLM from George Washington University. Please join me in, in welcoming Ms Bliss. Thank you very much, Sally. And I 
very much appreciate being invited to join all of you this morning and to talk about the prospects for services negotiations in the Doha round and to also talk about um, Sally's new article. Um, I think, as all of you know, um, through last July and early fall, the United States actively engaged in both plurilateral and bilateral negotiations in the area of services, um, trying to press WTO members for the highest level of ambition as possible in the area of market access. And in doing so, we focused on what we've been calling key infrastructure services sectors, that of computer and related services, financial services, telecom, distribution, energy services, express delivery, um, and also energy and environment. And uh, during the July 2008 ministerial, approximately 32 trade ministers joined together in what was called a signaling conference. And our hope in promoting that conference was that while all of the emphasis had been on the agriculture and NAMA modalities negotiations, that in parallel with, with those talks on services, ministers would have the chance to come together and to signal to each other what their intentions would be with respect to the next round of revised services offers if an agreement on ag and NAMA modalities were reached. So um, the signaling conference did take place in July, as I said, and for the first time in the, at that point, eight years of services negotiations, the United States indicated that in its next services offer, um, if there were substantial improvements in the market access offers of other members, it would be willing to bind a greater number of H-1B visas and would consider whether it could offer a visa for contractual service suppliers. Now, in retrospect, with all that's happened since last July in the world, not just in the trade area, but elsewhere, um, perhaps the significance of that statement is, has fallen away to many. However, for the United States, this was an extremely significant statement because I think, as you recall, part of the unfortunate dynamics at that point in the services negotiations were that, well, we would be moving forward on market access but for the United States' reluctance to engage on mode four. So in our minds, we really had to remove that last barrier, go the extra mile, uh, which uh, then Ambassador Schwab did during the signaling conference. So we took that barrier, that obstacle, that argument out of the way and said if everybody was serious and would substantially improve their offers, then we would uh, consider engaging in that way on, on mode four. Unfortunately, uh, while we indicated that flexibility, the members in the singling conference, for the most part, did not indicate substantial that they would be willing to make substantial improvements in their offers. And we were particularly disappointed um, with respect to uh, several prominent major emerging economies who uh, did not indicate that they would be forthcoming, particularly with respect to granting new market access to their markets. So where we are in the negotiations is where we were last July and even before that, and that is that the current offers that are on the table basically capture the incremental progress and liberalization that has been made since in services since the Uruguay round. There has been some progress in terms of reducing 
the gap between actual practice and bound commitments, but virtually no progress in terms of producing or creating new market access. So the current offers fall far short of what the United States had hoped to see in terms of the market access improvements in the services negotiations, and it's clear that there's going to be a great deal of work um, and improvement that would need to be done. Um, to see the benefits, the kind of benefits that Sally was describing in her open remarks and so ably describes in her article as well. But it really raises a serious question as to whether the key emerging markets, especially India, China, and the ASEANs, have any intention of offering new market access, let alone binding most of their autonomous liberalization. And as Sally indicated, we at USTR are currently waiting for a political guidance as to how to proceed with respect to the services negotiations, let alone the entire Doha round. Um, but one thing is very clear, and that is that this administration will want to see real results in services so that we can, in the United States but also globally, truly benefit from the tremendous potential for gains in economic growth, employment, um, that Sally alluded to earlier. And in fact, the greatest potential area of benefit in the round. Um, so that American workers, American consumers, small and medium-sized enterprises, as well as large international companies um, can benefit from the Doha round, particularly in the area of services. But I will say, if the decision is to proceed ahead, there are valuable tools that we can use to do that. We will certainly, if our decision is to go ahead in the round, redouble our efforts in bilateral negotiations as well as revamping efforts in the plurilateral groups to develop strategies to achieve commitments from a critical mass of members. But for our efforts to be truly effective in these venues, we need to see a fundamental shift in the political will and attitude of all, recognizing that services is a core pillar of the Doha market access negotiations, and we cannot achieve true success in the DDA without a substantial result in services. Now, I will just briefly highlight some of the potential gains from services liberalization. Um, Sally's article has a lot of very good information on that score. The other speakers on the panel, Bob Vestine and particularly Aditya, that um, will go into that in much greater detail uh, than I, but just let me briefly say that um, it, it's without question that services contributes more to the world economy than agriculture and manufacturing combined, and it's the fastest growing component of world economic growth. There, this is no less true for developing countries than it is for the developed world, where in developing countries services represents 53% of GDP in low- and middle-income countries, according to the World Bank. Even in terms of jobs, in just the past few years, according to ILO data, the number of people in the world working in services has surpassed the number of people working in agriculture, and this trend is not reversing. Because services barriers are generally higher than those for goods, Comprehensive services liberalization would provide a greater boost to the global economy than the full removal of subsidies and tariffs around the world on agricultural and goods markets. As an OECD review concluded, gains from services liberalization are found to exceed those from goods liberalization. 
um, in some studies by up to a factor of five. These studies also show that uh, percent gains to GNP are greater for developing countries than they are for developed countries. For most of the gains come from lowering one's own barriers, and developing countries, on average, have more restrictive markets than developed countries. And those are just the static gains. The dynamic gains, as much of Aditya's research shows, would be significant as well. Open services sectors are critical for productivity increases and overall economic competitiveness, given that services are critical inputs to other domestic industries. Now let me take um, just a, a couple of minutes to comment on uh, the Cato study on services. We very much appreciate um, the article and Sally's efforts in this area because it highlights the, the importance of services both domestically and to the global economy. And the article clearly provides some very useful information and interesting ideas which are likely to elicit uh, numerous responses. But first, I just wanted to make a couple of, of factual points in response to one of the, the uh, points that it's raised in the article, and, and, or questions, rather, and that is, why didn't the U.S. participate in the extended Mode 4 negotiations in the Uruguay round? And the answer is simply that as politically sensitive as Mode 4 temp entry immigration issues were back in the days of the Uruguay round negotiations, nonetheless, the United States front-loaded its commitments on Mode 4 and made among the broadest commitments of any WTO member in the Uruguay negotiations. So having made those commitments, um, it really was not necessary for us to participate in the extended negotiations, particularly since that particular area in negotiations was not one of the United States' major market access objectives. Um, the other point I would like to make in general in terms of, of the article is that the notion of autonomous liberalization is clearly very important and part of the foundation of Article 19 of the GATS. However, it's very difficult to argue for further liberalization of, of sensitive sectors in developed countries, particularly in the United States. And it's precisely because we front-loaded our commitments in the Uruguay round. So in terms of the universe of what we could commit in the Uruguay round, we committed about here, and the margin left is basically quite small and very politically sensitive. Um, so contrast that with the level of commitments from the developing countries, um, where the level of commitments, particularly in a country like India, is, is far lower. Um, so key sectors like telecommunications, insurance, and retailing are areas where a country like India has a long way to go to even approach where the United States and other developed countries, even some developing countries, are. Um, and the suggestion is made in the article that it would be um, a benefit to the United States domestically as well as benefiting the round if the United States were simply to unilaterally liberalize those remaining sensitive areas. Um, I just make the obvious point that I think domestically, in terms of political sensitivities, um, that's really not um, much of a realistic possibility in the near term. Um, the maritime sector, I think, um, as most realize, extremely sensitive. But there's also a very important point, and that is that um, it's important to distinguish between cabotage, the domestic maritime trade, and international maritime 
And on the international maritime side, I will say the United States is extremely open. Um, And it's really only the domestic cabotage side uh, where the requests have focused. Um, And what's of interest is most and many other countries um, also reserve their domestic cabotage as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're not necessarily as open on the international side. Um, And with respect to aviation, there's a well-established regime of bilateral agreements that have been a very effective avenue um, for pursuing our economic interests, but also um, pursuing internationally um, and expanding in that sector. So I don't think there would be a constituency um, for changing that regime at this time. Um, Final point is our economy is very open, has been very open. Obviously, we're under pressure now like everyone else in the world, but still we retain an open trade and investment regime on the whole. Um, So aside from the political reality and the sensitivity of the remaining small slice of sensitive sectors where we have not made GATT commitments, I think there's a real question as where the benefits would lie. The far greater benefits lie from particularly developing markets in the emerging economies, from opening their markets um, to encourage capital flows and the free flow of trade and investment. So we continue to believe that the better solution is to strengthen the economic and political case for services liberalization in developing countries in terms of their own self-interest, which is to promote their own growth and development. Thanks very much. Thanks, Christine. Our next speaker will uh, present the business perspective of, of trading and services. Uh, Bob Vastine has served as the president of the Coalition for Services Industry since January 1996. Uh, prior to joining CSI, Bob served as president of the Congressional Economic Leadership Institute, a bipartisan nonprofit foundation that helps educate Congress on issues affecting U.S. economic competitiveness. Uh, he has extensive Capitol Hill experience, including as staff director of the Senate Republican Conference. Uh, he also has experience in the executive branch, in academia, and in the private sector. Mr. Vastine is chairman of the official Industry Trade Advisory Committee for International Trade and Services, which advises the United States Trade Representative. Mr. Vastine is a graduate of Haverford College and the Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. Please welcome Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sally. Thanks for this opportunity. The service sector isn't, uh, isn't usually favored with a, a seminar entirely devoted to its, uh, its objectives and, and the conditions of trade, so this is most welcome. Uh, let's do it every year. Um, I appreciate your paper and its insights into the benefits of liberalization for developed and developing countries. It's always helpful to be reminded that liberalization cuts both ways, both uh, here at home and, and, and overseas. Um, I would like to point out that the U.S., along with the EU, have taken more commitments to open, tr- open markets in the GATS than any other countries. So we are in the forefront, and one of the problems we have in the existing environment is that we don't have any trading material. Our negotiators, where is Dick Self, decided to give it away uh, earlier. Um, so we're, we're very much in the position of arguing that uh, liberalization of trade and services is just plain good for you. And uh, whether you're developed or developing, and uh, Linda Schmidt is here and others who have made this case, and Aditya, and we do believe that is the case. 
Um, and also, I'd like to remind that we're in this game uh, to promote American competitiveness, to promote global trade, and, and thus economic recovery. So in the context of the current economic environment, we continue to think that trade liberalization is, a, is, is quite necessary. I'd like to take this opportunity to comment on the state of play in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the effort to open services, trade, and investment markets and review major elements of CSI's blueprint, what we call our blueprint for moving forward, uh, called uh, Forging the Way to Growth, Expanding World Markets for Services. Uh, here it is, and it's on our website. And uh, Forbes, Forbes magazine gave, gave it a little tout on Friday or when it was last published. Uh, it's really not been public until now, um, and we had prepared it in order to discuss it with uh, the, the, the incoming administration. And I, I'd like to say that uh, our, our colleagues at ESTR have been very helpful to us as we formulated it. So today I'd like to cover services, the economy, and trade, the road ahead for the DDA, additional paths to liberalization, and a few bilateral issues. On the first point, uh, services, the economy, and trade, I think everybody knows, and anybody who's read this paper, uh, the Sally James paper, knows how very important services are uh, to, our, to our economy and to the global economy, and Christine has just referred to that. Um, I won't go very much further into that except to make the observation that if you observe employment trends, um, the U.S. has been, been becoming a service economy since 1800, and we crossed the line and became the majority employer in the United States in 1930. So the idea that this is something new, that the services sector is uh, newly on the scene, is a, is a post-World War II phenomenon, um, is just, just wrong. And, um, and, and it, so we see an inexorable trend toward uh, services economies here and in all other economies. It is happening globally. Therefore, all the more reason to redouble our efforts in uh, establishing the rules and, 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 and applying the rules of liberalization um, internationally. I want to give you an overview of what we think the new administration should do to ensure that our companies continue to be winners in the global economy based upon um, the, uh, the blueprint. First, what is the role of the Doha Round? Uh, CSI and its members have been, since the, since the get-go, very strongly in favor of the Doha Round and before that of the mandate of the Uruguay Round to proceed with services and agriculture in 2000 as part of the so-called built-in agenda. Um, and we have been very, very aggressive in bringing delegations to Geneva, in making the case, in writing studies, in employing economists to, to demonstrate to, the, to, to uh, doubt the doubting Thomases of the world that services liberalization is indeed good for you. Um, we're at a place, though, where along with the NAM and the Farm Bureau, we are very deeply concerned that the existing modalities and services offers plus signals uh, that are now on the table are not an adequate basis on which to reopen um, We await, as does everyone, the, the, the new administration's reformulation uh, of, of its policy, its approach to the Doha Round, but we are concerned that the existing uh, the foundation uh, is, is, is quite weak. Um, we believe that until the administration can regroup, um, the WTO should right now focus on policing and monitoring uh, the standstill and extending it, make, helping to ensure that it extends past its initial 12 months. Now, Pascal Lamy, in a report about two weeks ago, said that 
uh, countries had not, in a major sense, uh, rolled back, that rollbacks were not a, v a very deep concern, and that and the WTO has been uh, monitoring the, to the extent that it can. It has no policing authority, but it certainly could, can, is suited to monitor uh, the, ex the extent to which countries roll back existing liberalization, existing treatment of services uh, and other trade and investment. We believe that the G20 should give renewed encouragement to the WTO to do this, and so should our, the member governments. Um, we believe that the Council on Trade and Services and Special Session, or the Services Negotiating Committee in shorthand, should meet to consider how to reaffirm the objectives of liberalization and preserve offers and signals that, in services that have already been made. Um, we, we are concerned, however, that any such services cluster, services meeting, uh, not be used by those who would take the opportunity to argue that closed markets have withstood the financial crisis better than open ones, or those who would like to roll back existing market liberalization or access and freeze uh, the effort to get new liberalization in the name of economic stability or those who want to justify getting a quick, quick deal on services without any real liberalization on the grounds that the economic crisis requires quick completion of the Doha round. This is an argument we hear from our brothers in Europe rather frequently, that it's very, very important to capitalize, to seize the day, to seize the gains, the substantial gains that have been made in Aganema and, 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 and thus, in a sense, complete the round if that were to happen, we have an enormous trepidation that we wouldn't get anything more in services. And what we have is simply not enough. It does not represent meaningful uh, services liberalization that would result in new jobs and economic growth. And as Christine has pointed out, every, and Lamy, every, every, I hope Aditi agrees, since he is one of the main students uh, of the issue, that every study, the conclusion of most studies is that uh, the, there is more to be gained by services liberalization, uh, by liberalization in services than in any other uh, sector. Um, finally, with regard to uh, the, the existing climate, uh, we've, we strongly believe that the, a first objective for the, an early objective for the new administration must be to implement the existing three trade agreements that uh, are on the table. Um, we believe that even in the absence of immediate momentum in the DDA, USTR can explore and launch other creative approaches. These must embrace both cross-border trade and investment. The U.S. will have exported uh, last year more than a half a trillion dollars of, of, of services across borders, cross-border. In addition, we, we will have, by the end of 2007, the data lag, probably come close to um, $840 billion of sales from our foreign affiliates, services foreign affiliates. This is real money. This is, this is uh, practically one and a half times the GDP of Canada. It's, we're talking a, a very important uh, part of, uh, of the U.S. economy here. That is the sales from U.S. companies abroad, and which result in uh, time. Uh, okay, very quickly, which result in uh, in reflows to the United States of to about $250 billion in, 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 in 2007. We are very concerned that there are people in the new administration who look at this foreign investment as suspect, wishing to 
um, hoping that somehow the, 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 these sales uh, to foreigners in foreign markets can be repatriated and that they could become exports. But we believe there are lots of ways forward, including sectoral agreements that might take elements of uh, some of the agreements, the, the, the nexus as, that have come out of the plurilateral uh, context, the plurilateral negotiations in the WTO, and lift them out and do ACTA-style agreements, that is to say agreements among groups of countries that are willing to make progress in a certain sector, even though they may not in- incorporate uh, the problem countries. They, they, they bring together the countries that are willing to arrive at a gold standard uh, for example, uh, the, the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement. Uh, we could see agreements like that in other discrete sectors, computer-related services perhaps. Uh, we look to uh, other forms of sectoral approaches um, that engage uh, discrete groups of countries. We strongly support the P4, P8 um, uh, uh, movement. So um, th- we think that, and we outline these in our, in our paper, we think that there are a number of ways in which the United States can make very substantial progress in expanding global services trade, even in the absence of a vibrant Doha round. Finally, uh, Aditya, we, um, um, I won't, uh, we, we believe strongly in, in pursuing the, the, the bilateral relationships with China and India and, um, and, and the dialogues that have been very helpful to maintaining open dialogue with those two countries during the last several years. Finally, we are most eager to work with the new administration to continue, the international, to continue U.S. international engagement to ensure open and non-discriminatory markets. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. I saw Christine taking copious notes, so I'm sure you can look forward to the administration implementing those policies in full when, as soon as Ambassador Kirk is sworn <laughs> in. I quote you? <laughs> Our final speaker today is Aditya Matu, lead economist in the Development Research Group of the World Bank and an undisputed authority of the benefits of services trade, especially for developing countries. He's leading a bank project on international trade and services. He specialises in trade policy analysis and the operation of the WTO and is helping enhance policymaking and negotiating capacity in developing countries. Prior to joining the bank in 1999, Mr Matu worked at the World Trade Organisation Secretariat in Geneva, including as economic counsellor in the Trade in Services Division. Mr. Matu has lectured in economics at the University of Sussex and was lecture at, lector sorry, at Churchill College, Cambridge University. He has published widely, including by co-editing the Handbook of International Trade in Services. Sounds like he might know a thing or two about it. Uh, Mr. Matu holds a PhD in economics from King's College, University of Cambridge, and an MPhil in economics from St. Edmund Hall at the University of Oxford. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Matu. Thank you very much for inviting me uh, here today, Sari. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I should begin by um, complimenting you on an excellent paper. I propose to make three points. First, I think as Sali's paper has very nicely demonstrated, there are significant gains from services liberalization to both developing and industrial countries. Second, most of these gains have arisen from unilateral liberalization. Most countries on their own have opened up their markets and services. Very little of the liberalization 
can be attributed to multilateral efforts or, in, for that matter, even to the large and pervasive regional efforts. This raises an interesting and important question. First of all, why have we not seen more success through negotiation? But also, as Christine and uh, Bob pointed out, that there are areas where protection persists. Why does it persist? And I would encourage Sally in the next stage of her work to address the issue that we are struggling with. How much of the persistence in protection is attributable to the power of vested interests who benefit from protection? And how much of it is attributable to legitimate concerns? For example, about regulatory inadequacies. There's one thing we have seen very clearly in services, that in some areas, if liberalization runs ahead of adequate regulation, it can end up producing perverse results. So the central argument I'd like to make today is that we need greater international regulatory cooperation, both to encourage greater unilateral liberalization and to facilitate greater multilateral liberalization. Let me just start with a picture, which is really an analogy. Just as dramatic reductions in transport costs and trade barriers have made possible the fragmentation of goods production so that different countries could specialize in different stages of production, so we are seeing, thanks to the digitization and reduction in communications costs, a fragmentation of services production. When we walk into a hospital today, it's conceivable that the initial call center services are being provided in the Caribbean, the medical transcription in Ireland, the payroll management in India. And this fragmentation means that even though the industrial countries, and those are the sets of uh, columns to the right, continue to account for the largest share of services trade, over 70%. The fastest rates of growth today, and that's the picture on the right where you can't see the names of the countries, but those are India, Brazil, China, Costa Rica. So the fastest rates of growth in services trade are today being seen in developing countries. So there is clearly an increased stake in services trade, a shared stake where there is continued dominance of the industrial, but the greatest dynamism <coughs> in the developing countries. We have been looking at policies and conducting surveys for the first time of applied policies in services across a range of countries. And this picture measures on the vertical axis the extent of restrictiveness of services policies and the horizontal axis the per capita income. If I can just go over here. These are the industrial countries. Rich and relatively liberal. These are some of the poorest countries in the world who, thanks to the efforts of the IMF and the World Bank, are also among the most open in the world. 
And one irony is that some of the fastest growing developing countries in Asia, that includes India, the Philippines, Indonesia, China, and Thailand, are still among the most restricted when it comes to services trade. Now, that's not to say that liberalization hasn't happened. Unilaterally, China, India, Thailand have substantially opened up their markets to services, but they're still among the most protected. Ah, great. Thank you. Thank you. But when you look at the picture across different sectors, the interesting thing is that the orange represents professional services, which covers the mobility of skilled people across uh, countries, and the green represents transport, including cabotage, that even the high-income countries are relatively restrictive where it comes to allowing the mobility of skilled people and continue to protect their transport sectors, as Sally's work has shown. So in a sense, the last bastions of protection are transport and the mobility, at least, of the skilled, if, even if politically it's difficult to envisage agreements on the mobility of the unskilled. And the irony of the Doha negotiations and services is, despite the remarkable work that Christine and Bob and others have done, that transport is not even being seriously negotiated. Air transport is at least the most relevant part where hard traffic rights are concerned, is explicitly excluded because it is special. When we know that airlines like Air France, and this is anecdotal evidence, probably make more profits on their, trans, uh, on their African routes than on their transatlantic routes because cozy duopolies flourish on these routes. Maritime transport has not been negotiated for reasons that you heard about. So even though we have African countries paying five times the transport costs that they pay tariffs, in a development round of negotiations, we are not even talking about transport. This is work that we did some time ago, which looked at the power or the consequences of exempting collusive agreements in transport from competition law. I'd be very curious to know how much of this is still relevant, but very recently, many airlines were fined for collusive uh, operations on freight. Respectable airlines like the British Airways and I think even Lufthansa. So clearly, collusion is still an issue and it penalizes both industrial and developing countries and it flourishes because the EU and the United States exempt collusion from the scope of their own competition law. Recent work we did on, I should reassure you that when I'm speaking in developing countries, I emphasize the costs of their own protection. So lest I seem to be emphasizing too much the United States, it's because my object is to provoke you today. So here, when we think about healthcare, some recent work we did showed that the fact that insurance arrangements either explicitly or implicitly discriminate against treatment abroad imposes a big cost. That we looked at 15 types of medical treatment, which after consulting extensively with doctors, we established were safely tradable. 
And even if just one in 10 patients was to travel abroad for them from the United States, the cost savings would be $1.5 billion. In India, substantial unilateral liberalization has led to huge increases in productivity in sectors which rely on telecommunications and finance. When foreigners come to the United States, not only do they produce immediate cost savings, they contribute to the dynamism of the U.S. economy by contributing to innovation. This is recent research that we have published which shows how much foreign graduate students and skilled immigrants contribute to innovation. But foreigners still pay a large regulatory tax in order to practice in the United States. A fully trained foreign surgeon would have to spend a long period re-doing uh, their residency and other qualifications again because of the regulatory structure. So there are big gains, and services reform is profoundly important. But what have the WTO negotiations delivered so far? Essentially, the blue line tells you where the offers were at the end, or the commitments were at the end of the Uruguay round. That's the blue line. It's sort of an average level of restrictiveness of the Uruguay round commitments. The green tells you what is contained in the best offers that countries have made so far. This doesn't take into account what the positive indications that came in the signaling conference that Christine mentioned. But actual applied policy on the ground is the red line. So you can see that reality is much more open than what's happening in the WTO. Mm -hmm. So this has created a real issue in the business community. So there is, I think, and I'd like to know more about this from Bob and Christine. Is it that the unilateral liberalization that's happened has robbed the multilateral process of a large part of its raison d'etre? Or is it that we still care sufficiently about this remaining protection in order to be able to do something about it? Or is the object of multilateral liberalization simply to harness the unilateral liberalization, which would mean trying to bring the green line as close as possible to the red line so that we can at least preclude the reversals of policy that crisis like the present might provoke? What is our goal? What is our ambition? I would like to just quickly state what I might think is happening today. There are at least three big players. There are the small and poor countries, which are relatively open, as I've said, but have not necessarily reaped big benefits because of weaknesses in complementary regulation. They have limited interest in the negotiations, because the areas of export interest, tourism, is completely open, really. And where they want to move people, I think there isn't a political chance that they'll get any mobility of the unskilled. Their real interest, I think, would be to get meaningful technical and financial assistance. There are the large developing countries like India, Brazil, who have an export interest in cross-border trade and skilled labor services and could conceivably trade off their unilateral liberalization and perhaps more market opening in return for greater security of access on cross-border trade so that this Democles sword of protectionism that hangs over outsourcing is eliminated. 
and perhaps greater improvements on skilled labor mobility. The puzzle has also often been the industrial countries' inhibitions in services negotiations. They are mostly open, except, as I said, in transport and skilled service provision. They have a huge export interest in services, and their objective, as Christine said, is to improve access to large developing country markets. But there are political sensitivities about both now Mode 1 and Mode 4. And perhaps there is a significant dilution of private sector interest because so much has been obtained through unilateral liberalization in developing countries. But perhaps one idea is to break this stalemate by directly defining a mutually acceptable package. Rather than get, you know, continue to do what has been done now for nearly 20 years without producing any significant incremental liberalization, which is to have essentially a request and offer approach, could we define a package which is commercially relevant, which is balanced because there's something for everybody, and which can genuinely excite the development community? What would such a package include? It would include a promise not to discriminate on cross-border trade and make some progress on transport. It would mean a pre-commitment, especially on the part of developing countries, to gradually eliminate the barriers that they maintain to foreign investment in return where necessary for regulatory assistance. And it would involve greater scope for at least the movement of the skilled in return, again, perhaps for the developing countries and the source countries being willing to assume more obligations to screen people, to repatriate people, and to do more to curb illegal immigration. Perhaps that is the carrot that might induce an institution like the Department of Homeland Security to consider allowing the United States State Representative to make binding commitments on Mode 4 in return for securing meaningful cooperation from source countries. But just to conclude, a final point. We have to recognize that the times have changed. Institutions like AIG, which were at the vanguard of the negotiations in the Uruguay round, are no longer there to play that role. There are serious concerns about regulatory weakness. We have seen a form of financial protectionism, where in the past the greatest efforts were being invested in opening up foreign markets to foreign presence. Now there is a real concern of a withdrawal of capital and services from developing country markets as there is a pressure to recapitalize domestically, as there are guarantees to credit and loan being offered by industrial country markets and as there's political pressure to try and lend domestically. Just as when there was an agricultural food crisis and Argentina and Vietnam and India imposed export restrictions, it gave the European Union an opportunity to say, I don't know if they actually said it, that see, we need to be self-sufficient because when the times are bad, the exporters will impose export restrictions. You don't want the developing countries to say that when the times are bad, the capital and the banks will withdraw and leave us in the lurch. So we do need to think about regulatory cooperation on areas like credit guarantees and loan guarantees and rescues in order to reassure everybody that globalization is a force for good in good times 
and in bad times. Thank you. Thank you, Aditya. Uh, we've now come to the audience participation part of the program. Uh, just a few common sense guidelines before we open it up for discussion. Please keep your questions brief and make sure they are indeed questions and not extended comments. If I could ask you to please state your name and affiliation so our panel members know to whom they are speaking. If you could wait for the microphone to come to you before beginning your question and indicate to whom on the panel your question is directed. First question, Peter. Uh, Peter Whitney, uh, American University in the uh, spring. In the fall, I work for the Intermodal Transportation Institute, and we're particularly interested in trade facilitation. Uh, logistics companies, the airlines, uh, uh, shipping uh, companies. And so I wanted to ask, the really it's open for all speakers, could you comment on how far we got on trade facilitation in the Doha round before the Doha kind of went dead. Uh, so it's open to anybody. Probably Christine and Bob would be the most, but anybody who wants to chip in, I'd be very appreciative. Thank you. Um, well, I'm not an expert in this area, but I will say that um, we actually made a considerable amount of progress um, on trade facilitation issues, and it was one of the more promising areas um, up, up certainly through um, July. Um, but again, I'd be happy if you want to follow up. Um, I could point you to the right person at USTR, but I'm not an expert in the area to get into the weeds. But, but it was an area where um, I think it's a good example of being able to find common interests between developed and developing countries. Um, I, 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 sorry, I was just going to say that I think it's an area where, in fact, there were even proposals to try and retrieve the agreement on trade facilitation as perhaps an early harvest of the round. And it's also an area where this deal between obligations and assistance, I think, had actually made progress. There were promises of finding ways of assisting developing countries to implement the necessary reforms. Is there another question? Let's, let's go for one at the back, this lady here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Sherry Stevenson from the Organization of American States. Aditya, in your acceptable package that you outlined, which is a very intriguing idea, you had four components. And it seemed like the first one, not to discriminate on mode one, could be applicable to all countries. The second one, the pre-commitment to eliminate FDI barriers by, that would be developing countries. The third one, transport liberalization, developed countries. So and then we come to the fourth one. And you suggested, I think, the most complicated one of all, which is an opening on mode four as part of a package of meaningful cooperation from source countries. One, the other three can be done as a package, multilaterally. But the last one, the kind of meaningful cooperation from source countries, doesn't that have to be negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis? And how would you therefore incorporate it into a multilateral commitment under the WTO? How can you actually make that suggestion operational? Um, uh, th thank you, Sherry. I think it's a good question. I do believe that across the board, negotiations in the WTO would make greater progress if there was regulatory cooperation across the board, in financial services, in transport, 
and on mode 4. But mode 4 specifically in the current structure, we already have provision for mutual recognition agreements. For example, the United States may let in a doctor from one jurisdiction and not another, or a bank from one jurisdiction and another. So it's quite possible, and I think Christine and Bob have already been thinking creatively about a perhaps identifying a list of conditions that source countries would have to fulfill in terms of, as I said, screening, repatriation, doing more to do illegal, uh, combat illegal immigration. And these could be unilaterally and on a non-discriminatory basis be part of the U.S. schedule, which would say that to any country which meets these conditions, we will give access to our whatever special mode for scheme. And that would be perfectly consistent with the kind of arrangements that already de facto exist across the board in the WTO context. Could I just comment, please? Um, I think, uh, yeah, as Christina has pointed out, the, the mode four piece has been extremely troubling and difficult. It's difficult for the United States because it is constantly muddled and confused with immigration. It's very, very hard to explain to somebody that the distinction between uh, immigrant status and, uh, and mode four and uh, temporary entry, um, partly because in order to get more scope for temporary entry, we have to amend the Immigration and Naturalization Act. So arguing to a member of the Judiciary Committee that, that amending that act is not immigration, is does not cons- uh, result in immigration is a bit difficult. And it's made a little bit more difficult by studies such as the one cited in the, in the paper that show a huge amount of benefit. What was it, Sally? $150 billion or something? Right. From, uh, from greater access to uh, global markets for, um, for foreign skilled and unskilled workers. And therein is the rub. We we will not, uh, we have never envisaged, um, uh, and it would be very helpful to narrow the discussion to those who are skilled. We, we, we need, American industry needs and has argued uh, for more visas, for temporary entries, for people from abroad, aliens like in, 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 in the language of the law, who, <clears throat> who have skills that we need um, who are in some cases already employed by the company, who need to be trained in U.S. facilities. Uh, otherwise, the training facility has to be moved abroad, and we've had examples of that because of strictures after 9-11 where uh, our companies have had to move their training facilities for internal training to other countries. Um, we need visas to bring people here to discuss, to show them how to our, our, serv- our complex services products, software products, et cetera, work, how to sell them abroad, how to um, – and, and we need people to come here to uh, – in order to make deals, to, to do business deals, and it's hard to get visas for these people. Uh, so uh, there are, there are dis- discrete and distinct needs for more visas for temporary entry, year and a half. And if we could narrow the discussion – in the WTO to those sorts of people and completely remove the idea that we're going to begin importing unskilled workers from Malaysia, um, um, for example, or Vietnam or wherever, uh, that would be very helpful. I should have said as a point of clarification, I am indeed a mode four worker myself. Whether or not I am skilled or unskilled, I will leave to other people. You are definitely skilled. <laughs>
Um, I was brought in under a, just from way of background, under a part of a bilateral deal between Australia and the United States, the free trade agreement. There's a special category, visa category, two-year renewable indefinitely, and I'm here under one of those. So if this isn't an example of the benefits can, that can flow, <laughs> I, I don't know what else I can tell you people. Okay, other question. This gentleman just down here, thank you. Uh, hi, Ernie Preeg, Manufacturers Alliance. I have a question for Bob Astine. As a background note, actually, uh, Bob and I are two of the last surviving participants of the Kennedy Round negotiation in the 1960s. Uh, but my question relates to your comment about the three FTAs outstanding, uh, South Korea, Colombia, Panama. And I wonder if you could summarize uh, the benefits to the U.S. industry in this sector for, for these three agreements, and should they be highlighted more in terms of getting support for the agreements? Oh, that's tough. Uh, I don't have my talking points. But, um, pardon me? Go ahead. Right. And the, Korea, the Korean U.S. Uh, FTA completely sets, sets aside the existing insurance regime, uh, which is dominated where the, where the regulator is basically a grouping of companies from the private sector, the Korean private sector. So that the regulatory authority is, in essence, the, 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 competi the, the competitors to U.S. companies. It would completely revamp and revise that, um, that uh, regime. It would take off the books a law that is fortunately not implemented that um, basically says that U.S. Ex foreign express delivery companies uh, cannot operate in certain fashion in, 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 in the Korean market. Um, it opens benefits for U.S. hospital services, medical services in, in, Korean, um, in Korean hospitals and in establishment in Korea. Um, and that's about getting to the bottom of my, of, my, uh, of my retained knowledge about the Korean agreement. Christine probably has more examples. But um, we, we, we definitely we, – we've – and uh, I will say, however, in my defense – that as chairman of the Industry uh, Advisory Committee on, on Services Trade, uh, we have gone through these agreements, uh, chapter and verse, um, uh, exemption at a time, exemption by exemption, through the annexes one and two uh, to each agreement, the Panama, Colombia, and Korea agreements. And uh, we, we filed our reports at the end of these negotiations. And I can say that the ITAC uh, 10, of which I chair, I'm chairman, uh, was wholly unanimous in agreeing, and this is a, a multi-sectoral committee, in agreeing that this, these, these, these agreements uh, are very good for – they're very well negotiated, there are a minimum of exceptions and services, and they are definitely in our interest. Christine, did you want to follow up? I, I was just going to add, because I don't want to take a lot of time from other questions uh, for, for more questions, but just in very general terms um, – I'm glad you raised that question just to remind people about the extensive and the depth of benefits under the FTAs. Because the FTAs are negotiated on what is called a negative list basis, it means that once we reach agreement on the core obligations, which are national treatment, no market access restrictions, MFN, transparency, um, and domestic regulation being applied in an impartial manner, 
then it applies to all services and financial services and also investment for both goods and services. And then the burden is on our trading partner to then negotiate with us where they want to take exceptions from that on called nonconforming measures. So for the FTAs that you mentioned, for mode one, for example, cross-border services, they are now obligated, as we are, on a national treatment basis to allow cross-border trade across the board except where there are specific exceptions, meaning, for example, that our trading partner, whether it be Korea or one of the CAFTA countries, Panama, Peru, um, cannot erect what are called local presence requirements. In other words, that you cannot provide your cross-border service unless you have some kind of presence in that territory. That's a major improvement for those uh, industries where cross-border trade is becoming increasingly important because services is becoming more tradable. I think somebody mentioned the removal of foreign equity restrictions in terms of Mode 3. We, line by line, as Bob said, in each of those negotiations, where there were significant investment barriers our trading partner had to negotiate with us to negotiate those limitations down or to eliminate them altogether. In some cases, 100% foreign ownership. Other cases, over time, say two years, three years, five years, eliminate them completely. So that's significant removal of foreign investment restrictions. They also provide U.S. service suppliers with the right to choose how they want to establish, whether they want to establish a branch or a subsidiary or a sole proprietorship, which can also be quite meaningful. Um, so I just wanted to summarize that the, the depth for all services, and not only those services that exist now, but new services that we haven't even thought of just as 10 years ago nobody had really thought of about use of the Internet. So, Okay. Um, all right, ma'am, if you want to... Yeah, Laurie Sherman, I'm a sole practitioner and a services junkie. Um, and my question to, to Bob... an AA statement? Say again? <laughs> Sounds like an AA statement. AA. I'm a services junkie. Um, my, my question, building on the how great the FTAs are and from a services perspective, is are you contemplating or would Bob like to talk about any potential bilateral services-only deals which are possible? Hmm. Uh, we, what we've done is, in our in our blueprint, provided a. Uh, uh, um, first of all, we're mem we're member driven, so in our blueprint, our paper, um, we've suggested a menu of of, of bilateral um, of, of of approaches, uh, not necessarily country by country, but more sector by sector. So, for example, uh, could we? Pick, uh, could we pick the take the uh, the the e-commerce e chapters from some of our FTAs and uh, pull them out of the FTAs and generalize them to uh, other to groups of countries to a larger group of countries uh, along the lines again of the ACTA model picking on picking countries that are willing and able to uh, to do a deal and then hopefully generalizing that those standards to other countries. And um, there, there could be ways. There, there certainly can be ways of uh, making uh, advances, building on the U.S.-Japan regulatory dialogue, um, which uh, the U.S. financial services industry, at least, feels has been very, very successful. Uh, it's been in existence about ten years, and has produced uh, better regulation both on the Japanese side and on our side, according to participants. Um, can we uh, pick Korea, for example, and until we get uh, 
until we get uh, um, uh, are able to move forward with a Korea FTA, can we use the time to uh, with a kind of a bridging mechanism and open a similar sort of intense regulatory dialogue with the Koreans in order to have our regulators meet with each other uh, on a regular basis and explore ways in which to Im improve mutual uh, each other's regulation. Um, so there, uh, I, I encourage you to look at the document. There, there are lots of sectors we could pick out. One approach would be to pick the plurilaterals that have made the most progress in some plurilateral agreement uh, discussions in the WTO. Um, there has been a nexus of agreement, uh, for example, uh, computer-related services, perhaps energy services, um, that could be taken and within the WTO or outside it, those sectoral uh, issues could be further explored and perhaps an agreement reached. So it, it just we're just suggesting we use uh, our imagination and, and good sense and try to uh, find ways to go ahead, to get ahead. Um, Ma'am, did you have a quick, yeah. This, down, this young lady down the front, please. Hi, uh, Ankunath with the U.S. India Business Council. <clears throat> um, Aditya, a lot of your data showed that India uh, has a long ways to go in liberalizing services, particularly retail, insurance, financial services. Um, the India Investment Treaty, as I understand it, is right now on pause. So actually, Christina, I had a question for you. If you think there is a chance that we'll see it uh, restart again this year, and what prospects you see for significant liberalization through that type of treaty? Um, the meeting that we were scheduled to have with India, what she's referring to um, is a meeting of one of the first negotiating sessions that we would have had with India on a bilateral investment treaty. Um, and that meeting was deferred simply because the new administration had not had time to review the policy as it is reviewing all policies generally, whether in trade or other areas. Um, and I really can't speak to what the decision will be. I mean, certainly um, there are a lot of very strong arguments as to why um, it's in the United States' benefit to pursue um, that negotiation in terms of opening the um, India's market and pursuing greater protections for U.S. investors. But as I say, I, you know, I can't speak more than that than a result. Um, in terms of prospects for liberalization with India, um, if you're talking specifically in the context of a bilateral investment treaty, that only covers mode three. So it would only relate to those barriers with respect to establishment of an enterprise or a business that's already established but may be discriminated against. So it wouldn't cover um, things like cross-border trade issues, for example, uh, a mode one issue. Um, so I, I don't know if I was getting to all of your question, but, but it really, if um, we do resume the bit negotiations with India, it would only relate to investment issues. Any other questions up the back there, sir? Brad Nelson, Department of Defense Acquisition Technology and Logistics. A question for, a question for Dr. Matu, your um, chart was very interesting, showing the different levels of barriers for different categories of professional services or different categories of services, and the uh, restrictions for professional services were much higher, particularly relatively so in the, the wealthier countries. Could you elaborate that on that a bit as to what those restrictions are and what's probably motivating them? 
I think there are two kinds of restrictions. One are the explicit quotas, like, for example, the US H-1B program, which limits the total number of uh, specialty occupation people to just 65,000 every year. The EU has similar either discretionary limits or uh, a proposal in the context of the current negotiations to replace them with more explicit quotas. So, so that's the first layer of restriction. The second layer is the regulatory restriction where, uh, and this is some work we have done and uh, it's a working paper which is available from the World Bank website, which looks at what a foreign professional needs to do in order to be able to practice in the United States. And we looked at uh, doctors, architects, engineers and accountants. And you know, across the board, you see the great difficulty in when you look at the regulatory dimension is because clearly you do need to ensure that foreign professionals are adequately trained. But our conjecture was, and you know, speaking to professionals, a lot of those objectives could be achieved through, you know, tests of competence. For example, like the US MLE exam, and certain periods of internship where their sort of professional competence can be verified. But it seems that in many cases, the regulatory requirements in practice are much more burdensome than the need to be to achieve the legitimate regulatory objective. And if you were to try and impute a cost to that, both in terms of the actual cost of taking those exams, but more importantly, the time, uh, sort of the income foregone in the period that is required to uh, sort of requalify, turns out to be quite significant. So those are really the two broad uh, types of restrictions that foreign professionals face. A quota on entry and then a set of regulatory impediments. Can I, can I just comment on that? Because um, that is an area where um, the United States has particular concerns, and that is that in, in many countries um, the professions are regulated locally, and obviously in the United States um, in some areas you have national associations that are involved in, in regulation setting. In some instances, you have state bodies. Um, and I think it's certainly true in the U.S. market that while there may profession by profession may be differences in um, who has jurisdiction over a particular profession, I think as a general matter um, in the United States, the principle of non-discrimination is observed. Um, I think on the whole, there are no things like nationality restrictions, which is the case um, in uh, some of our WTO member countries, where if you are not a national of that territory, you cannot practice in a particular profession. We've run into that, particularly in our experience in the FTA. So I would add to the list that's out there that nationality restrictions and the whole principle of non-discrimination is, is, is a real issue that remains. Um, and there also are quotas in, in some circumstances with respect to professions. Um, the other thing I would say, just uh, the statement that Aditya made about um, the U.S. limitations on the H-1B visa, um, we actually see uh, our commitments in a positive light. I don't think you'd find another WTO member country that has actually bound a specific number and certainly nothing like 65,000. So while um, some might describe it as a restriction, um, if you look at the difficulty most countries have with immigration policy um, and temporary entry, um, 65,000 is quite a significant commitment. Um, 
And as controversial as it is, I would just refer back to the statement that Ambassador Schwab did make last July during the signaling conference that that if others were willing to look at, at their own um, schedules and offer real new liberalization, then the United States would look at this area as well. Actually, uh, just to confirm what Christine said, I agree that I think the U.S. has a relatively liberal regime. Uh, so in, in a way that other countries have even more restrictive policies, that's one. But one thing that makes the U.S. very complemented, uh, complicated as a place is the fact that the domestic market is fragmented. Even moving within the United States for professionals, some certain categories of professionals, is not easy. And the third point I'd make is just that looking ahead, that the possibility of international trade in services, of fragmented services, has made it possible to circumvent a lot of these regulatory barriers. For example, if you were to try and send a full architectural design from the Philippines to the U.S., there would be a problem. But if you sent two-thirds of it and had the final stage performed in the United States, then there isn't a regulatory impediment, similarly in accounting or legal services. So in a sense, again, the same phenomenon of digitizing and communication has, I believe, reduced the restrictive impact of regulatory impediments because it's being increasingly possible to circumvent them. Um, thank you very much. I think we'll leave it there. Um, but I'd like to thank you all for your attendance today. And if you could just join me in thanking once again our excellent speaker. Please join us upstairs. We have a buffet sandwich lunch.